0: My partner in this enterprise is Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Elliot, great to see you. I hope you had an easy fast.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, reasonably easy fast. It doesn't get any easier actually over the years, but uh, but thank you, I'm uh, doing well. I, uh, I think like you, I was wracked with guilt after last week, when I, I thought of all of our devoted listeners, you know, who turned to us for, if not for wisdom, then at least for solace. And instead, we produced an episode, the title of which was "Everything's Going to Hell, because it is. Um, so, um, as you know, the two of us thought, well, we could do something a little bit more cheerful this week. So we thought we'd talk about something we we love dearly, namely books. And I'm going to begin by um, spilling something which I hope doesn't get the IG of the Defense Department and the IG <laughs> of the State Department really exercised. So when we were in government together, uh, we would be traveling quite frequently to Europe, uh, where you were doing a magnificent job of patching the Franco-American Alliance you know, back into shape. Um, there were trips of several days They were very intense. We'd be going from breakfast through dinner, but I have to confess that once on each trip, there would appear a 90 minute block of time called cultural support activities. And I think it's now okay to reveal to, uh, a candid world that actually that was time spent in bookstores and you know our special assistants who now by the way occupy pretty senior positions in the pentagon although with the other party uh you know would kind of look at us with sort of bemused i don't know interest i suppose um but uh there was always a great moment of uh relaxation wh- was otherwise a pretty intense and crowded time so maybe we can kick off the discussion i can ask you what your favorite bookstore is
0: I think my favorite bookstore is the Waterstones up by University of London, which had a fantastic remainder section for academic remainders. The problem, uh, you know, on some of these trips was literally not enough space in my suitcase for the haul that would come out of this. And not enough space on my bookshelves, which my wife would periodically remind me of as she tried to impose triage on me. So, you know, one comes in, one goes out.
1: Yeah, well, I was, I was actually we've just revealed to our long suffering spouses that we actually came back with these vast hordes of books, which we would try to smuggle in. Um, I, I mean, I, that is a wonderful Waterstones. I like uh, Hatchards on Piccadilly, which is actually yeah. now part of Waterstones. Um, a smaller bookstore. It's one of the, I think it may be the oldest and uh, still operational one in London. It goes back to the late 18th century. It's a small store, but it's just beautifully arranged. And the staff really know their books. And it has everything, history, literature, mysteries, you name it. Um, but it's just a beautiful bookstore to go browse in. And I always come out of it intellectually richer and financially poorer, sometimes by a considerable amount.
0: Yeah, and a guilty pleasure, I have to confess, is that the UK edition of some fiction books, particularly science fiction, mystery fiction, are actually much nicer than the US editions.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well and just the way they're they are presented. Now, you know, one of course one other kind of bookstore that's um, is increasingly difficult to find is the good used bookstore. Um, I mean, in, in, I remember when I was a graduate student and had no money at all, there was this tremendous thrill of the hunt, you know, when you'd go into, there's a part of Cambridge, which had like three or four quite good used bookstores and it was before the internet. So there was no, you know, the, the prices couldn't be set in a way that was completely transparent, or if they would, it'd be, a uh, real struggle. so that you had a good chance of getting a real find. And now there, there are there are some. I mean, second story books in Washington is very good. Um, there's some secondhand bookstores, but generally they have a better idea of what the market will bear. So your chance of really making off like a bandit have gone down.
0: Yeah, I you know I I had the same experience as a, a graduate student at, at Yale. There was a place out in the countryside outside of New Haven called The Book Barn, which was just, it was what it sounded like. It was a giant barn with tons of used books. And I, I remember getting copies there of uh Forrestal's diary, Cordell Hall's memoirs. I think I got uh, William Leahy's memoirs, as well as uh, memoirs about the Wilson administration, Lansing and, and Joseph Tumulty.
1: No, I, I hope today's Graduate students, at least there are some out there who still know that pleasure because it's like, in in a way, it's analogous to going into the stacks of one of the great university libraries, which I remember, you know, being overawed by the first time I did and saying, wow, this is civilization. In the same way, there was, it was definitely part of the, the intellectual experience to go crawling around secondhand bookstores and coming up with things you never expected. Uh, inexpensively, and then going back and just diving into them. And I I do worry a little bit sometimes that um, our students today have fewer of those kinds of moments of serendipity.
0: Yeah, I, I spent hours in the stacks, both at Cornell and Yale. And I remember one time being at the library at Cornell, and I was just looking at this kind of wall of books and out of his carol came uh, Walter Lefebvre, who was my teacher, the American diplomatic historian at at Cornell. And he looked at me and uh, I think I must have been a a junior at this point because I was already working with him on my senior thesis. And he said, Eric, you're never going to read all those books. (laughs) It was extremely deflating. Because I thought he had read everything.
1: So. Well, you know, I, I remember none of my professors had offices in the Widener stacks at Harvard, like uh, Judas Schlar. And, you know, they were they were dark. They were somewhat grim. It was, you know, old oak furniture. The lighting wasn't great. but But again, you did have that feeling that you were coming into some sort of temple of learning. And somehow... I mean, it's wonderful that you can access all kinds of articles and even books on through electronic media, JSTOR, what have you. There's still something about the book.
0: It's true, I, I, although I have to say the ease now of doing research and the ability to do it and not go up and find some obscure journal where you're looking for the article and see that someone has razored it out of yeah. the bound volume. It, it, it there is you know something to be said for for that so I'm oh yeah
1: no, that part is that part is some form of progress for scholarship whether it's progress for culture
0: and civilization yes and civilization
1: I agree. is another okay so let's let's instead of sounding as we so frequently do like uh, Waldorf and Statler in the uh, in the Muppets um, what are you reading I am working my way through Brendan Simms biography of Hitler
0: and i'm also reading a biography of ivan the
1: terrible i can't imagine why whoa so what do you uh okay hitler i got uh talk to me about ivan the terrible is this one that says he wasn't really that terrible he was just kind oh of
0: no 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 it's it's more really about um, court life in the court of uh the russian knyaz, the prince and a, a lot of it, it goes back to a conversation you and I had offline, not on, on the show, but about an article, old article by Ed Keenan, who used to teach Russian history at Harvard about Muscovite political folkways. It's actually, it was that article that got me to decide to read something about Ivan. But how much the, the foibles of the court, the, the kind of rules of court life, Um, The rules of bureaucratic life in Russia and the rules of public life, social life among the peasantry. Not that much has changed, sadly, since the 16th century.
1: So that I mean, this is why it's great to have a well-educated friend, uh, because I remember you suggesting that article. Ed Keenan was very famous Russian historian at Harvard probably not as well known as Dick pipes, but then he tended to write about earlier periods in Russian history. And he was a somewhat less colorful figure. I think it's fair to say, but when you recommended that article to me and I, I dug it up immediately because whenever you tell me I should read something I do. And, um, I thought it was, I thought it was wonderful. And I think the the key point that I took away from that one was that, you know, the czar has to appear all powerful, but in fact, He's dealing with a bunch of boyars underneath him who are, have their own uh, power bases or jostling with each other. And so it's more of a balancing game. And I thought it was very interesting. At least it raises questions about, you know, what sort of control does Putin have?
0: Right, right. And I mean, you know, some of this, of course, comes out of Putin's constant efforts to compare himself to Peter the Great, to Ivan the Terrible, to other uh, Russian leaders, not so much to Nicholas the First, who he, I think, actually yeah. sort, of, sort of resembles most. But, but it was, anyway, that's, so that's sort of, that's what's on my bedside table.
1: So on mine, um, I've been working my way through Jay Turner's biography of Chiang Kai-shek, The Generalissimo. Uh, that was for my trip to Taiwan. And Uh, it's a very good book, I think it's what he's it's, I wouldn't say it's a revisionist account of Chiang Kai-Shek, but, but I do think Barbara Tuckman in uh, the Stillwell Papers and sort of other things she wrote did him a disservice by really cementing that view of Chiang Kai-Shek as somebody who's hopeless, corrupt, venal, incompetent, and he was anything but, I mean, he was, um, he was not, doesn't seem to have been personally. Particularly corrupt, although there are deeply corrupt people around him. But that's, you know, that's true of uh, Xi Jinping too. Uh, but it really, I think, it, it captures that fascinating period from the end of the Manchu Dynasty, the Qing, all the way up through the um, Chinese Communist Party's takeover of the country, and you really see the difficulties that he's wrestling with um and the kind of miserable hand that he's been dealt now it's not held by some of the people around him to be sure uh it, it i mean so far what has been really reminding me is that boy have we you know china is another one that we kind of messed up uh i mean i wouldn't go back to who lost china but you know i i do I, it has got me thinking about george c marshall convincing himself that he had solved the chinese civil war And, you know, the level of naivete in that I think is really stunning. The other book I've been reading is uh, for this book that I'm going to be doing about Teddy Roosevelt, uh, The Last American Aristocrat by a fellow named David Brown. It's about Henry Adams, who was a brilliant historian. His uh, Library of America now has two big fat volumes. His History of the United States under Jefferson and Madison um which is still in many ways an epic history i mean i think some of your old teachers edmund morgan and among others said this is really probably the finest work of american historiography ever um and it is brilliantly done it's interesting to see how he did it he he had privileged access to all kinds of archives and so on and it's um i read it once i'll probably reread it again but but i and of course he was a you know uh he was a guy from he's the grandson and great-grandson of two presidents uh the author of what's probably the best known memoir in the united states the education of henry adams book uh clearly brilliant you know amazing letter writer but i have to say the more i read about him the more i think what a creep as a human being um, you know, his, he,
0: his brother Brooks Adams was
1: also quite weird. His was well, his brother was even, even worse in some ways. But Henry Adams was—he um, was an incredible snob. He thought the country was going to the dogs because of both industrialism and the rise of immigrants. Rapidly anti-Semitic. I mean, I I've been reading some of his letters, and it's staggering the amount of. He, he was so anti-Semitic that even the sort of the polite anti-Semites of the time said, what, what is it with Henry and the Jews? Uh, and th- I think the answer is he somehow thought the Jews embodied uh, modern financial capitalism. And, some mm-hmm. uh, and it was also so, so
0: did Hitler, according to uh, Brendan Sims, by the way, which is
1: that is a great book. It, it was also utterly indifferent to the fate of African-Americans. It was quite interesting because he deep down, I think he felt more sympathies with the Southern gentry uh, than he did with his own his own kind. So it's you know what it's making it's but it's well written, well documented biography, and it it does make me reflect on the way in which you can be brilliant. You can be extraordinarily gifted. You can be an extraordinarily perceptive advisor, extraordinarily um, perceptive observer of people and places and and he was that in the washington of his day and really kind of a sort of a cold and rather repellent human being with gaping blind spots and the the one other thing and of course i'm i'm kind of whipping myself into a pro teddy roosevelt uh furor he and actually john hay who was who was his closest friend and uh, who was Roosevelt's Secretary of State? They're just, they're always patronizing Teddy Roosevelt. And you know what? Whatever his faults, and he was a bit, you know, there was a bit of bombast there and so on. Teddy Roosevelt, just as a human being, was like leagues ahead of where these guys were. In addition to being no slouch himself, I mean, a guy who read three books a day.
0: He was so hyper caffeinated. I mean, I, I think his consumption of caffeine was. Off the off the charts, if I recall correctly.
1: Yeah, he did. He did take in a lot of. You know who else took in a lot of caffeine? It was Balzac. He he would
0: that have makes like, sense. like
1: twenty cups of coffee a day as he's churning out, you know, Father Gorio and all those other things.
0: Of course, those were sort of demi tasses. So it's like it's not like your Starbucks, you know, vente or something.
1: Yeah, I get, okay. I'll, I'll take that. But I think if you or I did that, you know, our hair would still be standing on end, you know? So those are the things we're, we're reading. What's, what's next on your list?
0: Uh, what's next on my list is something you recommended to me, which is Phillips O'Brien, How the War Was Won uh, about uh, World War II.
1: And well, that is a great it, book.
0: It looks fantastic.
1: Yeah. Just so for the listeners with that, um, his basic argument is the Russian front in World War Two mattered a lot less than you think. The war was decided by air power, sea power, and logistics. And I, you know, I mean, he may overstate it a bit, but I think it's a very, very powerful case. And we we need to get him on the podcast. Sure. So I'll, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: No, no. So what what's what's next on your list?
1: So I uh, also a World War Two book. um, France on Trial by Julian Jackson. Uh, Jackson wrote a wonderful biography of De Gaulle, and this is about the trial of Marshal Pétain after the war. And you know, when Pétain was arguably senile, so there's Pétain, the great hero of Verdun, who who does become a collaborator. I think that's oh my God, yes. Mm -hmm. Um, During the occupation, but then there's this big public trial. But his his point, as I take it, is actually, uh, you know, France itself was on trial in some way because of the challenge of dealing with collaboration. It is funny that you and I keep on going back to World War II, isn't it?
0: I think so much flows from what happened in World War II and World War I, honestly. I mean, that those are you know, a really seminal events. Yeah. If you think about things that have happened in our lifetime, the fall of, of Yugoslavia, I mean, that has its origins in Versailles. Iraq, the creation of Iraq as a, you know, as a nation state, you know, also, you know, is a, a consequence of the breakdown of the Ottoman Empire after World War One and the, you know, reassignment of different, you know, parts of the Ottoman Empire to different um, Western countries or in, the, you know, in the case of Iraq, it was the Brits until independence. So I mean, so much of you know what has happened. That we're dealing with today still has you know its origins in in the you know world war one world war ii periods it's, it's impossible i think to disentangle the two
1: yeah i think that's right um, i mean
0: for instance we talked a lot about nagorno-karabakh you know of course the creation of Nagorno Karabakh and nakichivan these two exclaves one in azerbaijan one in armenia this was the work of you know of joseph stalin when he was the nationalities commissar after world war one trying to stitch together the Soviet Union and trying to keep various nationalities divided against one another so that, um, you know, Moscow could rule.
1: Of course, I think the other thing, too, is for both of us. You're just a little bit older than I am, but we both grew up in the shadow of World War II. Obviously, we were born after it, but that was our parents generation. That was people we knew as as young people. who had all been in it and been affected by it in different ways? Our teachers. I mean, um, actually, when I was in high school, I had a, a number of the rabbis at the Hebrew Day School I went to had uh, were they were all survivors. They had uh, you know fled Poland across Russia. One had been hidden in Berlin as a child. Amazingly enough, um, so the shadow of that was there. But I think there's more to it than just that. I mean, at first, I think first and foremost, what you said is that it. World War Two and and World War One before it really set the predicate for the world we live in today. But I, I think there's something even deeper, which is, you know, World War Two, both wars in different ways. I'll just speak about World War Two for a moment. It, it reminds you, you know, evil is real. It can really happen. Fundamentally, the United States is not the big problem. I mean, we make lots of stupid mistakes. And, You and I are often cataloging them in this, um, in this podcast, but there's real evil out there. There are evil dictators who want to do horrible things. And if you don't stand up to them, they don't go away.
0: Okay. We promised the listeners we were going to have a lighter note and we've somehow gone to the dark side again. So
1: that's a comparative statement.
0: So let me ask you this, um, what statesman's memoir do you kind of count as the best in your, in your estimation?
1: So I, um, I would fall back on the first volume of Kissinger's memoirs, uh, White House Years. Not that it's completely reliable, but you know, I think it was Dean Acheson who said, you know, only a fool comes out second best in their memoir. Um, and, and Kissinger, certainly no fool, neither was Acheson, who also wrote a wonderful memoir. But I think as a, um, on two fronts, first, just as an account of statecraft and the business of government, the business of organizing government and so on, it's fantastic. But it's also very self-revealing. Sometimes I think unintentionally so, as in his portraits of Nixon, his concerns about coming in, his, uh, you know, his, the tremendous sense of wound, uh, that's the only way you can describe it, that he felt when his colleagues at Harvard turned against him in 1970 over the bombing of Cambodia. I mean, it's a heart-wrenching scene, which he has actually mentioned to me on several occasions, um, where a whole bunch of them who had served in, the administrations that got us into vietnam come and they denounce him and nixon and they're not interested in hearing the the explanations and you could tell that was the moment when his connection to the university world died
0: this would have been among others mac and bill bundy
1: yeah carl kassen i think was one yeah uh even i think ernie may i'm I, i'm if i'm not mistaken
0: so, I, you know, look, I agree with you. I think the first, I mean, all three volumes of uh, uh, Kissinger's memoirs are, uh, are pretty, you know, pretty impressive. Um, I think, I mean, I'm partial, of course, because I was his special, special assistant, but I think George Schultz's memoir also is actually quite good and, and somewhat neglected as a source, you know, for the Reagan, uh, Reagan years by a lot of people. Um, but I do think honestly that Bismarck's memoirs really are kind of f- for a statesman, really kind of the standard.
1: Really, so I I will confess, I it, this is a t- talk about uh, you know one's feckless graduate school days. I once uh, picked up Bismarck's shortly after I had taken a year or two of German. I said, I know what I need to do. I need to read Bismarck's memoirs. In German? In German. Oh, okay. So I
0: well, up, I didn't do that.
1: No, no, even worse. So I picked up Irina Roman. I think that's what they're called just memoirs or memories. By golly, they were in Frakturschrift, you know, that old German mm, script, uh, migraine inducing script. And I took one or two stabs and I said, I can't do this. So I, I never went back and I never went back to a translation. Said, tell me, tell me about that. Cause you're, you're probably going to prompt me to go get a copy.
0: Well, because it's, you know, something you and I have discussed. We don't have great canonical works about diplomacy the way we do about war. There's no real equivalent of Shunza or Klaus yeah. um, But you know kissinger's memoirs bismarck's memoirs these are practitioners of of the art of diplomacy at a pretty extraordinary level and and bismarck in particular i mean when you think about you know w- what he did you know between sort of you know 1860 and 1890 it's it's really pretty remarkable you know uh, his firing by the kaiser when you think about it arguably in some weird way, was you know that, and, and of course, letting the reinsurance treaty lapse were like a, lighting a, a long fuse, you know that would ultimately explode in 1914.
1: How how candid is he in the memoir?
0: I mean, you no, know, I it's hard to judge, and it's been years now since I read it, but my my recollection is pretty, pretty candid because he'd been fired. <laughs> <laughs> That always sort of brings out the candor in people. I find.
1: Yeah, that's true. So I will. Uh, I'll. I'll give you a, a f- another favorite me- military memoir of mine in a moment. But there's another memoir that I think uh, you've mentioned to me a number of times. Maybe you could talk a little bit about it. Uh, Robert Murphy's Diplomat Among the Warriors. And I'm ah. sure that our listeners have never heard of Robert Murphy. So first, you're going to have to explain who he was.
0: Yeah. So uh, in my book. Uh, You know, if you ask most people, like who's the greatest American diplomat, foreign service officer, you know, I'm sure 90 percent of people would say George Kennan. But I think, you know, arguably there's a case that it was really uh, Robert Murphy that when he published. Diplomat Among Warriors, it was in the 60s, I want to say it was in 1964, I think it was it actually uh, was. You know, went to like I think number two on the bestseller New York Times bestseller list. It was a bestseller for quite a while. I believe it sold more copies than Kennan's memoirs, which were published, which were published somewhat later. I think Kennan's came out in sixty eight, if I'm not mistaken. I could be off. I could be off of you know on on the years here, but but Murphy was a career foreign service officer. He ended up being Eisenhower's military advisor during the um, invasion of. Uh, North Africa and Italy. So he ended up arranging the the infamous deal with Darlan. He'd been, I believe, chargé d'affaires, if I'm not mistaken, in um, Vichy France for a while. And he was regarded as a, you know, sort of Vichy sympathizer, which I think is, is, is a bit unfair uh, to him. But it, he ended up becoming undersecretary of state in the Eisenhower years. Uh involved in all sorts of of things i john negroponte once uh, told me that he decided to join the foreign service after reading robert murphy's diplomat among warriors uh, in in the mid 19 mid mid late 1960s
1: another very well-known american diplomat who was deputy secretary of state when uh when i was at state yeah i mean and and i think the idea is also he did spend a lot of time with the military so he was a yeah diplom-
0: yeah and, and warriors. yeah i mean in that sense I felt certainly when we were in government, when we had provincial reconstruction teams in Iraq and in you know, Afghanistan, and we had lots of, we, we, had, we were struggling to find diplomatic advisors for military commands at much lower levels than we normally do, not at the combatant commands, but you know, lower um, in the system. And um, to me, that was a much more relevant memoir than Canons. In, yeah. in that in that sense,
1: hey, Kenan, I think is he is one of these people who, because he was a gifted writer, um, really got a reputation that was just way, way, way out of whack with what he actually did. He was also not a very nice guy. Yes, uh, I agree. He was also a, a bigot, and all that. So my my favorite philanderer. Oh, I didn't know that. I wouldn't. Have, I I don't know who would want to philander with him, but. Okay. Um, it takes all types. The, the, my favorite general's memoir is um, William Slim: Defeat into Victory. I don't know if you've ever read that.
0: I have. I, I read it on your recommendation about the Burma campaign.
1: Oh, yeah. this, by the way, this is the other thing our assistants would always make fun of us for. There would be book recommendations flying back and forth across the G5 as we uh, flew across the Atlantic. Um, that's a wonderful memoir because slim. So again, for benefit of our readers at the beginning of the war, slim is a corps commander in Burma as the Japanese attack and the British just take a heck of a beating and are driven out of Burma and it's not just defeat, it's disaster. And slim goes about rebuilding that he becomes the commander of 14th army. Uh, the, sometimes known as the Forgotten Army, a polyglot, multi-ethnic, multinational army. He rebuilds morale and he leads it in what's a remarkable set of operations that take them all the way to Rangoon. And I think that the thing that I find so compelling about it is he is so lucid uh, and straightforward. I mean, his this is a guy who, would, from modest means, this is not member of the aristocracy. Uh, But he did make his uh, spare money when he was an impecunious officer writing stories and stuff like that. And I think that's where he learned how to write very accurate prose. And it's, it's the best memoir I know for helping you understand the kinds of challenges that generals have to face and how they work through them and how they think about you know, the challenges that they've got and how you do things like rebuild morale. I just think it's a wonderful thing. He also wrote a, there's a collection of short pieces um, that he wrote called Unofficial History, in which what he does is he takes episodes in his course of a very long military career. First, he gives you a paragraph or so from the official history. And then he says, "Okay, this is what it was really like, whether it was putting down a riot or being on the Northwest frontier or in Iraq. And here's what I took away from it. And it's, again, it's simple, it's straightforward, but it's just brilliant and beautiful.
0: I guess I have a very conventional, you know, uninspiring military memoir, you know, to choose, which is Grant's memoir, just because I think Grant is such an underrated character and because I know he smoked a box of cigars a day, and he was suffering from, as a cigar smoker myself, um, he was suffering from cancer towards the end as he was writing it, uh, desperate to try and generate you know, money for his, for his family. But it's, it's really quite remarkable. And I think he's a very underrated uh, character.
1: There's a terrific um, annotated version of that that was put out by somebody we had on the podcast, Elizabeth Sammet hmm. uh, which is really good. I mean she did a very, very thorough scholarly job of presenting that. You know, when I read it, though, I have to confess, I didn't find it as insightful as I had hoped. Um, it was I mean completely clear and compelling, so it's it a good memoir. I agree with you, but you uh, with you about him as a human being. By the way, the other thing is Henry Adams loathed Grant. He's, you know, he had met, of course, Henry Adams had met uh, as a very young man. He had met Lincoln because his father was going off to be the minister to um, the court of St. James. And he said, you know, when you saw Grant in the same chair that Lincoln had sat in, it convinced him that Darwin was wrong. Uh, And but you're right. And, you know, among other things, Grant on Reconstruction is very interesting. Grant was much more predisposed to really put up a fight for the rights of the freedmen um, in the wake of it was a you know, really you know, brutal campaign on part of a unreconstructed South. Speaking of which, there's, uh, I don't know if you, have you read any of the volumes in the Oxford history of the United States? Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, there's some wonderful ones. So Richard White, his volume on the Republic for which it stands, which is really about from the end of the Civil War up to about the Spanish-American War. I, I think it is excessively dark, but having stipulated that, it really does rub your nose in, in the amount of domestic violence there was—the lynchings, the you know intimidation, the murder, strike mean, breaking. It, it, yeah, a lot of labor just, violence. A lot of labor violence also and a lot of racial violence, a lot of racial violence uh, intended to keep um, African-Americans down. And it's like I said, I think it's a bit over the top, Uh, not over the top. I think it's unbalancing that, you know, doesn't talk about the Brooklyn Bridge or American literature. There are a whole bunch of things where they're hopeful or, or positive things, and he doesn't seem to be interested in that. But that said, it's a it's a very, very. Confidently executed history which is really quite instructive
0: you know it's interesting you mentioned that i have not read that particular volume in, in the oxford history but you know i am i'm not surprised i mean i, I that period of time has always fascinated me and actually one of two books which just made an enormous impact on me intellectually as a phd student in history was Origins of the New South by C. Van Woodward, who was my my teacher at at Yale, who's like at that time was probably the dean of American historians. And it's it's a great book. Um, It's in the Louisiana State University History of the South series and it covers from the end of reconstruction the, the compromise of 1877 to about to through the prog- or to the beginning of the prog- or middle of the progressive period to about uh, 1912 or so i guess to you know Wilson's election it's a bit of a i mean it was written in the i can i think the early 50s if i'm not mistaken maybe late 40s but it sort of represents in my view the acme of the of sort of the Beardsian progressive history of the united states you know a, a lot of emphasis on uh, it's not a marxist view but it's it's very much a view of the economic interests that various classes in the south had and how they managed to solidify you know the dominance of of the what was the Southern ruling class in the late 19th century and how they disfranchised, not just black voters, but also poor white voters in order to, to, to do it.
1: You know, that, that view really had a, a grip for a long time on how people wrote about history. And, you know, and yeah. I, I would, alas, I would now willingly trade that for the, uh, you know, interpreting everything through the lens of, identity, race, and, class, gender. And race, right. race. I, I mean, I, I think there, you know, it's so easy to mix, miss the complexity of, of human beings. Do you reread books much?
0: Life is so short that I find myself ha- having difficulty justifying doing it to myself because there's so many books and so little time.
1: Yeah. I, I guess I'm not, I'm a little bit different. Maybe it just um, kind of mired in nostalgia, but I don't think so. I think with the great works, you really you you find new things in them. So I've one of my fa- all time favorites is Winston Churchill's biography of the Duke of Marlborough. Oh yeah, Marlborough's Life and Times, which is you know as I think it was Leo Strauss said, you know, this is actually a treatise in statecraft, which is really what it is. I mean, it's it's an incredible book, and I began rereading it, and it's stands up really well and it's really wonderful. And, you know, then there are the classics like Gibbon. And, uh, I I recently reread war and peace and that was also really quite powerful going back to that. Um, it's, it's quite, quite an incredible story. I don't read
0: as much fiction as I should. I mean, I,
1: I, well, I I can't say I, I read a whole lot. I read, um, a while back, uh, it's new Orhan Pamuk. It's no longer new. Uh, what is it called? The Plague? Oh, yeah. Uh, do you know which one that is? I think I think that's it. It's yeah, it's a very interesting sort of somewhat strange book because it's it, it, it's told as if it was a history. Uh, but he makes up a completely fictional island uh, and it it's I think it's very effective um, and it's a it's a actually I, I think you might like it because it's it's a picture. It's nights of plague. That's it. Nights of plague. Um, it's it's a picture of the Ottoman Empire as it's decaying. And, you know, there's the Sultan Abdul Hamid. There's the different functionaries. There are the local nationalists. And again, this is all, he's doing this with an island that doesn't exist in the middle of the Mediterranean. Uh, but I thought it was quite a powerful evocation of a moment, um, which I found pretty
0: compelling. I haven't read it. I've read other others of his novels. His brother, by the way, is a very accomplished Turkish economic historian.
1: Oh, really? I had no idea.
0: Yeah. yeah oh. He written quite quite a bit about uh, Turkish economic history, Ottoman economic history. He's very, very impressive. Impressive family.
1: As long as we're in that part of the world, I read recently Tom Segev's The First Israelis. Segev is a journalist, but he's really at this point sort of as much an historian. It is a phenomenal book. It's a book about um, the year after the creation of the State of Israel. And just all the different groups and all the kind of struggles and difficulties. And it really, you know, it makes you amazed that they were able to pull this uh, off. And I think, you know, the main reason is because they they had quite extraordinary leadership, not just Ben-Gurion, but a whole clutch of people um, around him who made plenty of mistakes, let it be said. But you know, almost by sheer force of will, managed to weld a nation out of some very, very unlikely components. So, let me ask a different question: um, Do you, what multi-volume work do you have sitting on your shelves that you haven't read, but you just find it comforting, have it there, having it there? Multi-volume work, hmm, or it could be a single volume, but somehow. For reassurance purposes, I think multi-volume works better.
0: Yeah, um, multi-volume. That, well, I mean, one multi-volume uh, set that I've had on my bookshelf for years, which I you know have wanted to read but have never actually read, is Daniel Borston's The Americans, the three volumes. Oh,
1: yeah, that made a huge splash when it came out.
0: Yeah, it was, in, in when I was in graduate school, you know, a lot of uh, people read. I just never kind Of got around, you know, around to it, but uh, but I have it, you know, and someday by God, I will read it. I mean, the, the other thing I kind of cherish that I haven't read yet is a copy of Lord Charnwood's biography of Lincoln.
1: Oh, it's worth doing, and it's a quick read,
0: yeah. I mean, I can read almost endlessly about Lincoln. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite books is T. Harry Williams' Lincoln, yeah, finds a general, yeah. Um, which is you know, tremendous, and it, but I it, literally, I, you know, I, I never find myself bored reading about him because he's just such a remarkable, incredible figure.
1: You know, what's a wonderful um, book about him is the the original mammoth biography by Nikolai and Hay, uh, John Nikolai and John. Hay.
0: The two volumes by his secretaries.
1: No, no it's like eight or ten. Volumes. Oh, is it eight? Is it that? Long?
0: Oh, okay. it's, I think it's eight volumes.
1: It, ah, it's okay.
0: Um, because and, it's a life in letters, right? Isn't it also his letters? Yeah, I
1: mean, it, yeah, I mean, that was the style that you did in the 19th century. You have extensive quotations from letters and stuff and speeches. But of course, they were his secretaries. so And they you know, effectively were living in the White House. And, you know, they knew him well, but they were also both quite rigorous in how they did it. And I think as a portrait of him, it's still, I, I mean, I'm sure... Will get angry American historians writing to us. I think it still stands and it kind of captures them. Now, they were, of course, they were young men and were, there's an element of hero worship in this, but, you know, that's, in the case of Lincoln, I think that's entirely understandable. So, my um, comforting multi volume work going back to World War II are the British official histories of the Second World War. So there's a grand strategy series. There's a Europe series of the Middle East. There's a phenomenal War at Sea series by Stephen Roskill, who was a fantastic naval historian who himself had been a naval officer. There's uh, the history of intelligence during the Second World War, and the, the first they are uh, they are still very interesting, even the ones that were produced in the fifties and sixties. But I think they, for me, they stand out as a Product of a remarkable time. I don't think anybody will ever do that again, because what the Brits did is they got some of the top historians in the world writing them. So, for example, the Strategic Bombing Offensive volumes, it's Noble, Franklin and Charles Webster, who in Webster wrote, a I think, biography of Palmerston, if I'm not mistaken. I think it also wrote it by Castlereagh. Um, you know, you go to Michael Howard, wrote one of the volumes in the intelligence history, greatest English military historian there was. I mean, they're just the the Americans did something similar, too. And in both cases, although there's some punches that are pulled and obviously there's some stuff that was suppressed because of uh, particularly anything uh, associated with SIGINT uh, signals intelligence, um, they were remarkably candid on the whole. And. The British, I think, were ahead of the Americans in not simply going service by service. So, for example, the history of the Middle East is a it's a multi-service history of the war in the Middle East, and I think that's whereas the United States, you had the Army Green Books, as they were right. called, military Great
0: history Center for Military history. Center for history.
1: They the, the Navy had Samuel Elliott Morrison write this incredible
0: multi-volume, uh,
1: yeah, volumes. Actually, the Air Force history isn't all that bad, but but still doing it by services, you know, does.
0: does You get you get the stovepipe. You don't get the full picture.
1: so, again, maybe I'm uh, you know, this is an embodiment of nostalgia for a better time, although there's still some great stuff. The uh, people, I think, frequently don't realize the German official history of World War Two is extraordinary. And that's really only been published in the last less than 50 years.
0: Right. Yeah, no, I've I've dipped into both the uh, British and American official histories for my own uh, research when I was doing my dissertation. But I cannot, you know, cannot say I've read them, you know, all all the way through, but they are remarkable.
1: Yeah. Is there a uh, period that you find? There's a, I mean,
0: there's a very good case for official history, which I think, again, we're going to get angry, you know, letters from, you know, from historians. But uh Ernie May once wrote uh a an essay which i i, I am not going to recall the title completely but it was in a volume of the Warren Center at Harvard's perspectives on American history and i think it was entitled to something like the case for court history which yeah. which will really excite a lot of angry people um <laughs> but um th- there is something you know to that i mean to be able to capture uh you know not just what's written on the documents because as you and i know the documents are important but they can also be deceptive
1: yeah oh i i completely agree with that it's also true at you know at a lower level as well some of the best volumes in the u.s army's history of world war ii there's one written by charles b mcdonald who i think was a infantry company commander and he's writing about some of the fighting in the hurricane forest and places like that and there's the perspective you know somebody having the perspective of a very low level officer who had served as an infantry officer during the war was was quite um was quite helpful um, and you know made those a great work i don't think I don't think people get the free reign uh that they got back then um there's a great just a
0: massive the, material i think now it, I it's understand. going to be very difficult for people to to manage and i i think i've thought for some time that we're going to end up having kind of bifurcated kinds of historians we're going to have some who are going to do a deep dive into some record groups you know the millions and millions of pages of some record groups whether it's the state department or defense department or others and do monographs very narrow on those subjects. And then we're going to have to have historians who are good at synthesis, who can take all those monographs and, uh, and have enough familiarity with the primary sources to be able to put them you know, the monographs all in some kind of larger context. But I, I really think it's going to be very difficult for anybody to have the kind of mastery of all the primary sources and the secondary sources to, to write about contemporary stuff.
1: Well, and then, you know, the the advantage that the World War II historians had is we captured the other side's records. That too. You know, and when, uh, I mean, there's still some good books like Michael Oren's History of um, the 1967 War, which I think do a very good job. He was able to do a bit of interviewing and so on in some of the Arab countries, but not all of them. But, you know, I I don't think anybody's going to get access to the Syrian archives or probably the Egyptian archives, and there was this brief moment of opening where you could get into the Russian archives, a little bit the Chinese archives. But, you know, there's interesting writing about the Korean War uh, that taps Chinese archives. and But again, that was a product of a particular moment in time when there was a, an opening, and particularly when they wanted to... Um, you know, put Mao in more of his place. And so the, the military commander, Peng De Wai, uh gets a bit more praise, which he, he absolutely he absolutely deserved. Um, but I think, that, you know, those, those things have closed down now. And, uh, you know, I doubt that anybody's going to get those, unfortunately.
0: So we have to wrap up. We're coming to the end of our time. So... Let me ask you, what, in the end of the day, is your favorite work of history? I know that's a hard one.
1: Boy, that's a really, that's a really hard one. Um, I mean, I have so many. You know, I have this interest in early American history. And... um, there's a bunch of books there which I love going back to. Um, and now, here's one that I talk about: in angry emails. Um, you know, Francis Parkman I think was a radically underestimated historian mm-hmm. in the nineteenth century. You know, he writes this massive, multi-volume work on the contest between Britain and France for North America, and it's it is not fashionable to say a nice word about Parkman uh because you know he didn't like the french he didn't like the indians they people forget he didn't like you know bostonians either because he was one he didn't like the brits he didn't like many people he wrote it under tremendous um pressure because he was you know debilitatingly near blind and it's a heroic effort But he it was multi-archival work. I mean, he's working in French as well as in English. And what his gift is a, you know, he's dismissed as a romantic historian. I suppose so he was. He has this amazing gift for evoking the landscape that he's writing about. Now, partly that's because he spent a lot of time, particularly in upstate New York, which is one of my favorite places. But but he evokes the time and the... um, and the natural landscape, which most historians don't, I think, really feel modern historians don't feel quite as. Obliged to do to describe, mm-hmm. Yeah, Um, you know, other than that, I'm uh, you know me, I mean, I'm hopelessly besotted by Churchill, uh, not his World War Two memoirs, although the first volume of those is, is still interesting. But some of his own works like uh, the Marlborough his World War I memoirs and then, you know, some of the books about him, which I you talk you know, you're saying about Lincoln is endlessly fascinating. That's how I how I feel about um, Churchill, how I feel about Churchill. What about you?
0: So <laughs> I have to tell a story here. So my favorite work of history actually is by one of my other teachers, Donald Kagan's uh, On the Origins of War and the Preservation sure. of Peace. And at one point, I was having a discussion with Secretary uh, of Defense Bob Gates, who was then my boss, who had just met Fred and Kim Kagan, uh, our friends and colleagues at the Institute for the Study of War out in Baghdad. Of course, he knew about Bob Kagan, who we've had on the podcast. He also knew Bob's wonderful wife, Toria Newland, now the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs. <laughs> and he said to me, how many of these Kagan's, you know, are there anyway? And um, I said, well, I think you've met them all now. And he then said, and he had just come off of being, you know, uh, the president of Texas A&M University. He said, I think Don Kagan's, you know, On the Origins of War is the single best work of history I've ever read. And I looked at him and I said, I was a teaching assistant in the course that became that book.
1: <laughs> oh, what a great, what a great tale. Well, you know, uh, this actually, this was, this was a lot of fun. I, I think I, one thing, my, my um, kids now quote back at me cause they're quoting them to their children. So I always used to tell them, you know, if you, you should always have a book with you. Uh, and like you, I am paranoid about going anywhere. And I do mean things like the Metro, without having a book and because I, what I said, if you have a book, you'll never be alone, you'll never be bored. And I think that's um, that's true. And, uh, you know, I sometimes f- fear what will happen when we no longer have the same kind of culture of the book that you and I grew up with. Um, I hope that's, I hope that's not the case, but you know, we, again, and maybe I'm getting dark again, you know, when you grew up where there were fewer distractions um, books were it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's not quite the same thing, you know, cuddling up with your Kindle when you go to bed at night. So.
1: No, although I have one and it's. um, It
0: has its its uses.
1: It has its, it definitely has its uses.
0: Well, on that note, we'll end this episode of shield of the Republic. I think we'll probably return to to books at some point in the future we kind of barely scratched the surface on fiction um yeah but it's been uh, been a fun uh, fun hour to spend with you elliot as always it,
1: yeah well uh, same here and happy reading